All right, we are back in our study of the crucifixion of our Lord in the Gospels, and we're technically in Matthew chapter 27, but we're going to be using content from the different Gospels for our message this morning. Last time we were together, we said that we were going to seek the meaning of the crucifixion of Jesus by looking not so much at the suffering itself, but mostly at the the people around it, the events that were accompanying it, and of course the words of the Lord Jesus himself, which are spoken from the cross. There's Famously, there are seven sayings from the cross that he spoke, and we're going to look at each of those as well. So last time we stopped at, at just really the first few minutes of what Jesus endured on the cross, and we looked only at the first of the seven sayings, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Or in my translation, it says, for they... Um, uh, for they do not know what they are doing. But there's something kind of noble about, for they know not what they do. I like that. But in those words, we saw our Savior's compassion and his love, his love for those who are actually putting him to a slow and cruel death. And all we see is Jesus' concern for them. That's all we see in him is love, selfless love. The great prophet Isaiah, in one of the greatest chapters in the Old Testament, the great redemption chapter, Isaiah 53, where Messiah is portrayed as the one who will give his life, bearing the sins of his people, it says, Surely our griefs he himself bore, and our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging we are healed. All of us, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned aside to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. It also says in verse 12 of that chapter, He poured out himself to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he himself bore the sin of many and interceded for the transgressors. So there's a lot there. Messiah is going to die. He's going to be numbered with the transgressors. He's going to be treated as a criminal, which is exactly what's happening. Jesus is being crucified with two criminals on a trumped-up charge. Um, And he's going to intercede, it says, for the transgressors, for sinners. So interceding, that's praying. So uh, he would pray on behalf of those committing transgression, the wicked, the the lawbreakers, the unjust, the cruel, the malicious. And what greater transgression is there than to crucify an innocent man? And even more so, a man that God had sent to be the redeemer of the world, that God had sent them their king and they were crucifying him. That's an incredible crime. It's regicide and because he's God, it's deicide. And because he was innocent, it's just plain murder. So Jesus prayed, Father, forgive them. Now we also saw how Matthew um, set the scene of the crucifixion, painting sort of a mental picture for us, the sights and the sounds of it. In Matthew 27, 35, it says, When they had crucified him, they divided up his garments among themselves by casting lots, and sitting down, they began to keep watch over him there. So this party of soldiers, they divide up his clothes and uh, gamble for them, and then they just sit down to wait it out. They've got to wait for these guys to die, and that could take quite a long time. So it's a very clear picture, them dividing up the spoils like this. Of course, the only spoils they have are his clothes. But you know what? There's a psalm in the Old Testament, 
Psalm 22. And you might want to turn there because we're going to be in there today and next week a little bit. I'll be referring to it several times. Psalm 22 was written by Jesus' ancestor, King David, a thousand years before Christ was born into our world. A thousand years before. And I honestly don't know what people in David's time thought about that psalm. I, uh, I don't know, Your Majesty. Uh, what is this psalm about exactly? I mean, it doesn't seem to be anything you've ever experienced with all the varied and wild experiences you've had in your life. It doesn't seem to fit with anything, but that psalm was inspired by God. Um, the New Testament calls David a prophet, and he wrote it, and it became part of the collection of hymns or poems, half of which David wrote that we call the Psalms. But it's essentially prophecy, prophecy by viewpoint, if I can describe it that way. It, it is a look at a crucifixion. It's an incredibly accurate account of a crucifixion, but from the point of view of the person being crucified, which makes it utterly unique. So it's describing it from the perspective of hanging on the cross, Messiah's actual perspective. And it describes the scene that we see in the Gospels with incredible precision. Even though in 1000 BC there, there were really no cultures that we know of that practiced crucifixion. So it's rather stunning. And it's not just describing a crucifixion, it's describing a Roman crucifixion. And it's not just describing a Roman crucifixion, it's describing this crucifixion. It's, it's special, it's unique. So this psalm is kind of a miracle that God put in the Bible itself in terms of its prophetic power, this detailed knowledge of the most important event in history, the very heart of God's redemptive plan for mankind, the cross of Jesus, described a thousand years before it happened in great detail. So last week we stopped at the very first moments of Jesus being on the cross, and David describes what he sees uh, from Jesus' point of view. So Psalm 22, we're going to start at verse 6, it says, But I am a worm and not a man a reproach of men, and despised by the people. All who see me sneer at me. They separate with the lip. They wag the head, saying, Commit yourself to the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, because he delights in him. And then verse 11. Be not far from me, for trouble is near, and there is none to help. Many bulls have surrounded me. Strong bulls of Bashan have encircled me. They open wide their mouth at me as a ravening and a roaring lion. Of course, this is imagery here of nasty people, and you can tell that from the context. I'm going to keep going here. Uh, skip down this angry, this poetic description of an angry mob uh, shouting at him. Look down at verse 16. Dogs have surrounded me. A band of evildoers. See, that's why all these animal things are a, a band of evildoers. They're not really animals. They're just describing the snarling nature of the mob down there. A band of evildoers has encompassed me. They pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. They look. They stare at me. They divided my garments among them. And for my clothing, they cast lots. So they're dividing the garments here. That, that's not something that would just necessarily typically go along with the crucifixion. It's something particularly interesting about this crucifixion. There wasn't a rule, hey, whatever they're wearing, you can divide that up. It's just something maybe they did in Jerusalem or that particular group of soldiers. Or Jesus is wearing something really nice, even though it's covered with blood, because um, people kept putting fancy robes on him to torment him and mock him. 
But although each gospel uh, selects various aspects of the crucifixion, all of them, all of them, all four of the gospels describe the dividing of Jesus' garments. It's one of the few things they all mention, which is kind of interesting. And that seems like such a side thing, a side detail, but it's a unique feature that's described in Psalm 22 about this crucifixion. And I think that's one reason it's mentioned. But it's John, in John chapter 19, who actually calls it a fulfillment of this scripture in Psalm 22. So he makes sure he points us back to that psalm. So John is plainly saying that Psalm 22 is prophetic, and it certainly is. And we're going to come back to it in a little bit, and then we'll look at it also next week. Now let's continue this narrative account of the crucifixion. The crucifixion itself lasted about six hours from 9 a.m. to 3 p.m. There's a pretty clear dividing line between the first three hours and the last three hours because at the midpoint is when the sky gets incredibly dark. And that would have been around noon. So the first three hours would be nine to noon. And two more things are recorded about um, this first three-hour period that happened during that period. And we don't know exactly when, but... Um, over the, that course of time. So that's what we're going to look at this morning. One is a brief conversation between Jesus and one of the robbers who's crucified near him. People being crucified don't talk a whole lot. They might right away early on to kind of snarl back at the crowd and stuff, but it, it takes so much effort just to breathe in that position and getting uh, breath gets harder and harder as time goes on. So a lot of these conversations are pretty short and, and clipped. But somewhere between Jesus asking the Father to forgive those who put him there and, and before the noontime darkness, one of the robbers, his heart softens. So both of these uh, brigands were shouting along with the crowd at the beginning. Matthew tells us that, Matthew 27, 44. says, the robbers who had been crucified him with him were also insulting him with the same word. So they're yelling at Jesus in the same way that the crowd is yelling at Jesus. But later, one of them has a changed heart. And we can only speculate about what he thought or how God's grace was touching his heart, what prompted um, this change in him. But these guys, both of them had probably heard of Jesus because Jesus was the most talked about person in Israel for several years. And it'd be pretty unusual if somebody had never heard of him. So they've probably heard about him and the miracles and, you know, the tens of thousands of people that would go out to hear him in the wilderness and all of that. Um, likely they had not met him, but they could have. But typically brigands and robbers aren't the kind of people to get baptized in the Jordan or to uh, go to the Sermon on the Mount. So they probably hadn't seen him or heard a sermon from him. But Luke records um, this later conversation with the one robber. And it has comforted so many sinners ever since that day, down through the long ages. Um, any sinner that's come to Christ takes enormous comfort from this text of Scripture, this portion of Luke. So it's Luke 23, 39. It says, One of the criminals who were hanged there was hurling abuse at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us! So this, this poor lost soul seems to think that by berating Jesus, he might be included in some sort of grand miraculous escape or something like that. Save yourself and us. He thinks uh, 
well, it's a wild hope, but if he's going to get off the cross, this is his only hope is that this Jesus guy is for real and he really is the king or really is the Messiah and he can rescue all of them. And he thinks, like a true criminal, because we're all criminals, we have this common fate and if he saves himself, why not take us with you? Because we're, we're all in the same prisoner thing together. We've all got condemned together. That's how prisoners think. If one person gets free, they should all get to go free. So I imagine Jesus um, still today, uh, when people are looking up at him or calling upon him, uh, hears things very similar to this many times a day all over the world. I got myself in trouble. I made a mess out of my life. It caught up with me. And now, without the slightest bit of humility or repentance, I want you to rescue me. Take me away from this. I demand that you rescue me from the consequences of my actions. You don't have to be a robber to think like that. Millions of people think like that. But the other robber has been watching and processing everything here. He's heard about Jesus. Now he has seen Jesus. He has seen how Jesus carries himself, how he acts, how he speaks. He heard him pray for those who were abusing him. So at first he felt like the other thief. Get us out of here if you have the power. Do something. Or are you a phony? That kind of thing. But something happens to him. Something inside happens to him. Despite the incredible physical pain he's enduring himself. God's grace is opening his heart. That's what's going on. So his desperation and Anger and fear is starting to reduce. It's easing because his faith is growing. And he sees his own guilt clearly. And he's accepting that he is, in fact, undeserving of God's grace or rescue. And while he doesn't understand all that's going on, he believes Jesus is the king, his king, and he's going to make an appeal to him. So this is what happens when God's grace touches a human heart. Other things fade away and faith grows and we apply ourselves and go toward Jesus and seek mercy from him. So when the other robber makes demands of Jesus, this robber speaks actually in defense of Jesus. So in verse 40 of Luke 23, it says, The other answered and rebuking him said, Do you not even fear God since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed are suffering justly. For we are receiving what we deserve for our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. Now there's a lot here behind these words of this robber. Grace is giving him humility before God. He realizes that the angry robber doesn't show any fear of God. Which is a sign of spiritual disaster for him. He also knows that he doesn't deserve anything less than exactly what he's getting. He's not going to blame anybody else for his situation. He's taking responsibility for his own sinfulness. So in essence, he's telling this other man, look, we're not getting out of this. We're going to die here. And we are guilty, and we're going to stand before God, and we should fear that. But for one thing I know, Jesus is innocent. It's a good statement that he makes. It's a very good statement. But it does not in itself, show saving faith. But the next statement does show saving faith. And that's verse 42 of Luke 23. He was saying, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. This is one of the simplest and most beautiful confessions of faith 
you'll find in the entire Bible. And that should confirm to you what Paul means exactly when he says, for we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Romans 3.28. This robber has absolutely no opportunity to make amends for all the stuff he's done, uh, to pay back his victims, to live a devout life, to uh, change his ways. All he can do is appeal to Jesus for mercy. That's all he can do. As he says, remember me, remember me. And that's all any of us can do to be acceptable to God. That, that's a, a, a realization of our complete helplessness before his holiness because of our sin. Our deficit is so huge. We can't make it up. There's nothing we can do to make that up. But what is so special about this particular day and this beautiful saying, this um, plea for mercy this robber's experience is that he's asking for mercy to Jesus during the very act when Jesus is paying the debt to divine justice for him and for all who come to Jesus as their king and their savior. He's actually there when it's happening. That provision is being made for his sin and he's appealing to Jesus right there. Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. So Jesus doesn't answer him with, I will remember you. His answer is so much better than that. He answers with an amazing promise. This is verse 43. And he said to him, Truly I say to you, today you shall be with me in paradise. That's a lot better than I'll remember you. Because you never know what that means exactly. He's telling, he's telling him exactly what his faith is bringing to him. He's going to be with Jesus in paradise. He doesn't say, we'll see. He doesn't say, I will look into your situation. I'll check, I'll, I'll check out your case and go through your life and see if you measure. He doesn't do that. He doesn't say, truly I say to you, I'll take 500 years off your time in purgatory. He doesn't say anything like that to him. It's a full promise. And the promise is being with Jesus personally. In paradise. You can't be more saved than to be wherever Jesus is. And that's where he's going to be. That is salvation. That's what salvation is. To be with Jesus when you pass from this life. So I hope you know that salvation cannot be earned. We can never be worthy of heaven. We're not good enough. It's really that simple. Salvation is the gift of God. It's all of grace. That's exactly what this man's experiencing. Grace is what? It's God's unmerited favor. You can't merit grace. You can't earn it. You can't please God by your good life. It's all of grace. And Jesus' words to him are pure grace. What he says, today you shall be with me in paradise. Wow, those words are so relevant, uh, so vivid. You know, every time a dear brother or sister in Christ passes away, they go to be with Jesus. That's exactly where they are. And if they were part of Acton Faith Bible Church, they'd go get a mel hug too. That's part of what comes with that. But the Christian wants most of all to be where Jesus is. And that is precisely the promise that he gives to this man and to all who are his. John uh, chapter 14, verse 3, In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. For I go to prepare a place for you. 
And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. Those words that I just read you are on a, a little plaque just inside the door of the Bedford's home. And I read them there again just this week when we were waiting for the people to come and take Glenn's body to the mortuary. And there, that, there those words sat, and in that moment they were a comfort. Just a beautiful thing to reflect on and to remember. So I read them there, uh, and it comforted my heart. It's not, a, it's not a comfort because it's just a nice thought. It's, it's a comfort because it's true. Those words of Jesus are true. He has gone to prepare a place for us. And if, if that wasn't so, he would have told us, he says. But he's doing it because where he is is where we're going to be. When we read in the Gospels words like that, that's not just a story, it's true. It's God's promises to us. So to be included in this promise to the robber, we have to seek Jesus with the same faith and the same humility that he had. I am guilty. Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Now, there's one more saying on uh, the cross at the, during this first three-hour period I want to cover, and those are Jesus' words to his mother and about his mother. And the only, the only friendly faces Jesus saw that day, one was that thief that softened and came to faith, and the other, the other friendly faces are a group of women and one man. So um, a lot of the women that followed Jesus uh, came to the cross with his mother, and they saw what was going on there that day. And then John the Apostle, who we've talked about, sort of been lurking around in all of this, he was with them. So John was the only disciple there at the cross. Matthew says there were many women. So it, uh, only four are named, but uh, apparently it was a, a pretty good-sized group. So they're grieving and they're horrified by it all. Um, but they're watching and they're hearing. And Jesus speaks to his mother. The words are, are brief. Like I said, the longer you're on the cross, the harder it is to speak. But um, for Jesus' mother, this day was foretold more than 30 years before um, what was going to happen. When Jesus was a baby, his, his parents brought him to the temple. So Mary had to go to the temple to make a certain purification ritual for herself that was required when a woman had a child. And then the first male child is supposed to be presented and dedicated at the temple, and you're supposed to pay a little price because he's not a... He's not in the priestly line, so you sort of pay a price to kind of technically ransom him. And uh, so they went all through all that. It was all required in the law of Moses. And at the temple, there was this elderly man named Simeon. And he, well, let me read it for you. This is a Luke chapter 2, verse 25. It says, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, looking for the consolation of Israel. That means the coming of the messianic kingdom. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. So he's receiving, through a special act of the Holy Spirit, divine revelation. He's going to have a prophetic moment in his life. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. Wow, talk about a cool promise. That, that's a really great promise. So you're going to, you won't die until you see the Messiah. That, that's special. Well, he sees Joseph and Mary coming in, and he just knows. The Holy Spirit lets him know, that baby, that's him. So he takes Jesus up in his arms, and he, and he says this prayer. Now, Lord, you are releasing your bondservant, him, to depart in peace, according to your word. 
For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light of revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. It's a great passage. And Joseph and Mary, Luke says, were amazed. They're like, wow, what's this? And then Simeon blessed them. It says he blessed them. We don't have the words. But he does have words that are recorded for Mary. And he says to her, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and the rise of many in Israel, and for a sign to be opposed. And a sword will pierce even your own soul, to the end that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. That's, that's a really riddle, isn't it? It's kind of enigmatic there. Many hearts, though, re revealed suggests kind of a watershed event where many people have to choose one way or the other way. There won't be a middle ground. And he says there will be a lot of opposition. He's assigned to be opposed. So people will turn to Jesus or they will oppose him. And at least early on, the majority are going to oppose him. And that's why he's on a cross. But surely these words, a sword will pierce even your own soul, can only refer to the day that she had to watch her son die on the cross. It's hard to even imagine watching someone you love die on the cross. That's a kind of slow death in itself to have to watch that. So this part of the crucifixion narrative regarding Mary is only recorded by John. Why? Because he was there and he's actually included in what happens here. So that's his story. So John 19.25, standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas and Mary Magdalene. Three Marys, by the way, that's another reason you know this is historical. When you write a fiction book, do you give everybody the same name? <laughs> Nobody does that. But in real life, it happens all the time, right? Uh, there's 20 Susies. And uh, anyway, there's, Mary was a really common name, and uh, everybody's named Mary practically. So only in real life do you have a bunch of people with the same name. So you, you never see that in fiction. It's just too confusing. But if, if somebody was there and said, hey, Mary, these three ladies would have all, would have all turned to answer the question. So that's their name. But mom is the focus here, uh, Mary, the mother of Jesus. And Jesus, in the midst of his agony, makes sure that Mary is placed under somebody's care. And he chooses John, the disciple whom Jesus loved, as it's, he's called in the gospel. John calls himself that. So the words are as follows. It says, uh, when Jesus then saw his mother, this is um, John 19, 26, and the disciple whom he loved, standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. And he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her into his own household. Now that's interesting because Mary had four other sons and at least two daughters. And um, it's a big Jewish family, you know, uh, the natural thing for her as she was getting in her later years as she is now at this point would be to go with one of them. I mean, that would be the normal thing that, that Jesus is the oldest son, but that the next oldest or the next could, could take her in. But they're not there. And uh, none of her children are there. None of Jesus' siblings are there. And it's Passover week. So they're probably in town, but they're not there. Why? Well, we do have a clear statement in John chapter 7, verse 5. It says, not even Jesus' brothers were believing in him. And in John 7, in that same section, right at the beginning of that chapter there, Jesus treats them like they're not believers, um, like they're outside the brotherhood of disciples there. And we also know that 
after the resurrection, Jesus is going to appear to his brother James, who will become a disciple and a great leader in the church of Jerusalem. And he's also going to write that little book in the New Testament that we have called James. And there's a little book of Jude that's in the New Testament right before the book of Revelation. And that's written by one of Jesus' other brothers as well. So there's a time when these guys are going to believe, but at this point, they don't. They're not part of the fellowship of believers in Jesus. They're not part of the um, kingdom group there. So whatever made them not believe in Jesus, whether it was the typical brother envy thing or um, over-familiarity with Jesus or the unexceptional nature of his life until suddenly he's out there doing all these amazing things or whatever it was, they did not believe in him as the Messiah until the resurrection because the resurrection tends to change all that stuff, right? How do you deny it after that? You can come up with all kinds of explanations in your head while he's alive, but when you, watch, when you know that he's been crucified and then he's resurrected from the dead and then he comes to you to tell you uh, what's up, you're going to believe. So they, at least two of them did. But right now, they are not a part of Jesus' spiritual family. They're outside. So Mary is entrusted to John, who Jesus trusts and has spiritual um, things he can provide for her as well as just taking care of her physically and all of that. So blood may be thicker than water, but spirit is way thicker than blood. And I think there's a lesson there about the importance of church family, the, the church family. Uh, so it's really something to think about. I'm not going to get into that right now, but uh, there's a reason Jesus picked John over his brothers to take care of his mother because that's his real family. And Jesus said that himself, right? When there was a story when Mary and the brothers all came to see him and he, uh, you know, they were going to take him home and he said, who is my mother and who are my brothers? It's those who hear the word of God and do it. And John was one of those people. So he gets that. That... Our, our bond in Christ is greater than all the other bonds of earth. And I think that's an example of that right there. So as we ponder these uh, first three sayings of Christ from the cross, we see Jesus seeking forgiveness for those who were cruel to him. Forgiveness and salvation we see granted to a robber who can do nothing but believe. And we see provision made for his mother in the family of God. But his work on the cross is just beginning. And when noon comes, this deep darkness comes across the whole land, it says. So something is coming. And I'm going to speculate just a little bit here. This, this darkness, three hours into the crucifixion, I think that definitely portends something. That didn't start at nine. It started at noon, this darkness. And so while the whole experience of Jesus' suffering uh, is redemptive, including his scourging and all of that, I think at this midpoint, that's when Jesus begins to feel, experientially feel, not the tortures of men, but the judgment of God. And I think that's what's starting to happen there. And so, Because on Jesus is poured out the wrath of God that all sin deserves, and all, the whole sins of all of mankind. The wrath of God, the full fury of God's hatred of sin is poured out on him. And it's at that point, in Matthew 27, verse 46, Matthew tells us about the ninth hour, that would be noon, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. That is, he translates it for us, my God, my God, 
Why have you forsaken me? Those words, that cry, those are the first words of Psalm 22. And next week, we're going to look at that. Let's pray. Father God, we're so thankful for the mercy of Jesus that we see so clearly. What an example of His grace, not only towards those that are abusing Him, but to the man of faith being crucified next to Him. How freely He gives him the promises of eternal life. How freely He tells him, you're going to be with me today in paradise. And we're just so thankful for that, Lord. When we stumble, when we know that we're sinful, that is a comfort because it's by faith that we apprehend our Savior. And Father, we just give you great glory and praise for the work that Jesus did for us, paying for our sins on the cross. And as we continue studying this, we pray that you would warm our hearts again towards the crucifixion and what was accomplished there on our behalf. In his name we pray. Amen. All right, we'll see you next Sunday.